Amen. It's like a splash zone up here. That's good. Uh, well, good morning. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, if you can. Um, we, Pastor Jeff is out of town, so we'll, we're going to be taking just a one-week break from our series in John. We'll pick back up next week when he returns. And it kind of works out uh, because Philippians is a book, particularly chapter 3, is where Paul really starts to get into his practical application. And I think what we're getting an opportunity to do is we've been getting this kind of theology of who Christ is, this, this cosmic Christ, this king, this sovereign, uncreated one who is the creator. But what does that really mean for our lives? Right? How, how do we apply that understanding of the gospel? Well, I think that's what we're going to find here today in Philippians chapter 3. So if Jesus is who John describes him to be in chapter 1 of his book, what does that mean for us? And that's kind of what we're going to be answering today, because I think what we see in Philippians chapter 2, if you were here with us a few months ago when we looked at that, we get kind of a similar picture of Jesus. We get this picture of this, this high and lifted up king of kings who everyone will bow down to. And so the same kind of theology of Christ that we're getting in John chapter 1 right now is the same kind of thing that Paul is delivering in Philippians 2. So the application that we get here I think fits really great with both. And again, so we're going to be in Philippians 3 chapter 1. But while, while you're finished and turning there, I, I do want to take a minute and, and rather than give you a cool story because I don't have a personality, I'm going to tell you from my introduction a little bit of the church at Philippi because I, I think... This is such a cool church in that we get to see its birth. That's something that we don't get to see a lot in, in Scripture. But in Acts 16, that's actually the start of the church of Philippi. Uh, we see Paul, probably with Timothy, maybe Luke, uh, plant this church, uh, particularly with a woman named Lydia and a slave girl, uh, but obviously some other members also being raised up in there. And like many of the churches that's being planted, persecution comes pretty quickly for them. Um, not just for Paul and, and his missionary group, but also for the church themselves. We know from 1 Corinthians that they experienced pretty extreme poverty as a result of their persecution. Uh, but all of this to say, they became a, a strong church that continued to grow. And they're one that's been known to be faithful and giving to the ministry of Paul as he did his missionary journeys. But it's also a, a church that's really important like really significant historically as well because you probably don't know this because not many people know a lot about the geography of the area but Philippi is actually the first church to be planted in Europe so all of the church history that we see after this and we have a church history professor for a pastor so I know that you know it right a, a lot of of the development of the church that comes comes later in Europe and we actually get to see the start of that through one little church that Paul and his missionary his missionary friends planted together. Now, uh, what we kind of come to, this is about 10 years after the church was planted. Uh, so they, he plants the church, he continues on his missionary journeys, and now he's writing this letter to them again about 10 years later. And, and what I, I want you to see in this is that he's writing to more than a nameless church. And this is where I think it goes from being cool to being like helpful to understanding the, the heart behind this letter. Because I think sometimes we can get the idea that Paul is writing to like a friend of a friend of a friend's church, you know, or like somebody like gave some money to Paul's missionary journey. So he's like, oh, I got to write a letter to him, you know, say like a thank you. But that's not what's happening here. Like these are people that Paul knows that he loves. In chapter two, we know that they actually sent a member of their church to deliver a, probably a monetary gift to Paul while he's in prison. So we know that these are his friends. These are people that he loves and knows dearly. 
And as he's writing this letter to them, who, who Epaphroditus, the man who brought the gift, is probably going to take it back. He's sitting in prison following his appeal to Caesar in Acts 25. And as he's waiting to meet with Caesar, uh, he's kind of writing what seems to be almost like a final encouragement. Because usually what happened when you met with Caesar is, is if it didn't go well, you were executed. And so what, what Paul's planning to do here, in my understanding, is that he's preparing the Philippian believers to raise up new leaders in an era where he's no longer there. So with all of that kind of out of the way, we're going to pick up, like I said, in Philippians 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. All right, so coming out of that passage, I think we kind of immediately see Paul's pastoral heart. Right? He's finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And, and again, if you remember our time in Philippians, rejoice and joy is kind of one of the main central themes Paul's trying to get across. He uses it several times. And, and then he also continues to remind them of what he's taught when he was with them and probably in letters that we, that we have lost the time. But then we kind of transition, right, in verse 2. And this is kind of a weird thing for us, especially as we, as we come into it and we're like, dogs are great right? And, and just as like kind of a cultural thing, dogs were not great in, in, in Jewish culture, especially in this time period. They were carriers of disease. They were not household pets. If you were an animal and you didn't really contribute to the workload of the house, you were a waste of time and resources. So like I know for us, we're like, that's really sweet. Like, what's up dog? You know, but that's not what's happening here. Like, this is like an annoying pet. Um, so we come into this tension, right? So Paul and this other group, we'll come back to them in a minute. This tension has already started in verse 2. And after that, he'll go on to talk about, okay, there's this group, but here's who we are as Christians, as people who trust in the true gospel. And then finally, we go into what we could say is Paul's testimony, right? Well, after that, he delivers one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, in all of scripture about faith in Christ. And if you were here a few months ago when, when I got the opportunity to do a few weeks in Philippians before, I made the argument that Philippians is one of the most practical books in all of Scripture. 
And I, and I think I can still make that argument today. Because see, while Paul's trying to do several things through this passage, and, and we could be here all day and I still couldn't get through all of them, he's ultimately describing who a Christian really is. And, and in essence, what we're going to be looking at today is some identifying marks that he's, he's showing to us, that he's lifting up as this is someone who trusts in Christ. In contrast to the lies that they were being told by this other group. Now we'll call them identifying marks and, and these are things that we can use to point to faithful Christians, those around us, but also that we can use to examine ourselves. And this is important because we know that there are so many people today who are Christians in name only. And, and even more than that, there, there's now kind of on the rise, and this is not something that's uncommon in church history, but we have people who are coming up and kind of trying to redefine the gospel, using the same words, but they have different meanings. And so what Paul's doing here is they're having the same issue. This group has come in and they're trying to redefine the words that they were taught by Paul and the other apostles to mean something different, to mean something less than what God means. And so Paul is correcting that with this letter. Church, this is why this is so practical for us today. We all know that that hasn't stopped in the pages of scripture. That's something that, that we have to combat even today. And the, the important thing is, is that even in our pulpits, we have to be responsible for who we're going to listen to. And I think Paul is also giving us an idea of who a, who a pastor should be, who we will accept as a spiritual authority. If you remember our time in Titus, we talked a lot about this as well. And churches, as we begin to listen to these, I, I know from my own heart, this is something that I, I want to remind myself of, it's really easy for us to, to read passages like these and be like, man, this person could really use this. But, but let's let the grace of this passage apply to our own hearts first, church. And I say that to myself. Let's let these marks first examine us and expose us where, where we have failed and where we have sinned. But, but just as, as the, the worship team sang just a few moments ago, what grace that his mercy is more. Church, in the last week as I've prepared for this, I've failed in these points. I have to confess to you. I have not been marked by the things that I'm going to be preaching but his mercy is more and so today if you start to feel that weight praise God but that's not the end of the gospel and we'll come back to that in a few minutes but let's uh let's begin with our first mark and we're going to be looking from verses one to three point number one Christians are marked by sound teaching point number one Christians are marked by sound teaching verses one to three if you've heard me preach before, you know that I love to, to talk about the throwaway verses, right? That, that we kind of read past, and, but every time I get to preach, I bring them up. And I, and I want to stop at verse 1. And, and this, again, seems like a throwaway verse, kind of like just like a transition statement. But, but I want us to see something here. Paul is essentially saying what I say every time I preach. We never go past the gospel, we go deeper into it. That's what he's, when he's saying to, to write the same things to you. He's talking about the gospel. And he isn't saying, okay, now that you guys have a firm grasp on the gospel, let's move on to the real stuff. Or now that, we, now that you're dealing with some false teaching, here's like why they're wrong and we're just going to talk about them. No, how does he combat it? He just talks to them about the gospel. Church, he takes them deeper into the gospel. That's how he intends to correct this issue with this false teaching group. 
And remember, this is where we find joy. The central theme of Philippians is, is joy in beholding Christ. And true joy is only experienced by sound teaching. When we get false doctrine, we get a false joy. And when we look at verse 2, we find that Paul is not a fan of everyone. To the point that he calls some of the members of Philippi there dogs and evildoers. And that sounds harsh. But he's calling out a group known as the Judaizers. Um, and Paul dealt with them a lot through his missionary journeys, uh, particularly in Galatians. Uh, he, he interacts with them a lot. But who are these people, right? And, and so what makes them so evil in Paul's mind? Well, we're going to put on our, our kind of church history hats for a minute. And, and we're going to discuss that the Judaizers were a group of people that would believe that you need to trust in Christ to be saved. Right? So far, so good. But what they would do after that is they would say, but to really experience God's grace, to truly be like the Christian that God wants you to be, you need to be a Jew too. And so they would come into these young churches and they would say, you have faith in Christ, that's great, that's the first step, here's the rest of the path. And so without the laws, and the reason he talks about mutilating the flesh, it's because all the way down to circumcision, without these things, you couldn't really be a Christian. You could just be in the, the shallow end of the pool. See, these Judaizers would claim to know Jesus. And, and they would come in, and they would probably look like the holiest people in the church. They knew their Bible the best. But they taught and they followed a false doctrine. They would teach that it's Jesus plus. That faith in Jesus alone can't save you. It's good, but it's not perfect. What you really need is Jesus and, and the rituals, or, or Jesus and the rules, or Jesus and tradition. That's what it really takes. But that's a false gospel. One that, one that is opposite the words of Scripture. And it might sound silly to us, we're like, okay, nobody here is concerned about circumcision to be a real Christian, right? But how often do we see the same thing today with a different rule, or a different tradition, or a different ritual? How often do our own hearts look to Jesus and something else as what we really need? See, the problem with the Judaizers is that they just change shape. The Jesus plus religion is not one that dies out when people think that they don't need to be circumcised anymore. The Jesus plus religion is alive and well today, and it's something that we have to constantly be on guard for. See, church, this is a warning against cults that we would see maybe like in the Mormon church or the Jehovah's Witness church. But it's also a warning to all of us that you and I cannot add to the gospel or else we will lose it. And Paul is adamant against them because they're leading people astray with what amounts to an empty gospel. The, the life that Jesus gives, the power to change that comes from the gospel, that's stolen in this empty doctrine, in this false teaching. And, and that kind of battle between Paul and these Judaizers, these Jesus plus groups, that's what's going to set up the whole rest of our passage today. So I want you to kind of keep that in mind 
right? This, this stance of Paul kind of arguing for faith and the Judaizers arguing for Jesus plus, that's the lens that Paul's going to give us for the rest of our passage today. You see, he's, he's warning the Philippians to be alert and watchful for these Judaizers and anyone else who would lead them away from the true gospel. And this wasn't a responsibility that he left with the pastors. In fact, if you look at the opening uh, verses of Philippians, you see this. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So, so to be marked by sound teaching, to be marked by sound doctrine is not just a responsibility of the pastors, though it is, but it's one that belongs to each of us. Just because you don't have a ministry degree or you didn't go into vocational ministry does not mean you can get to the judgment seat of Christ and say, that wasn't my problem. And since Paul's time, though, the number of false teachers and false gospels has only grown exponentially, right? So, so how do we combat this? You'll, you'll see maybe some groups who come up and, and they'll start to, to write about like, we just need to like kind of tighten down and just get more and more inside of ourselves. Or you see things like a, like a monastic movement, right? We just need to cut ourselves off from the world and just kind of live in our little bubble, or you see somebody who says, well, maybe we just need to compromise a little bit. Well, what does the Bible tell us? The way Paul combats this is he reminds them of the true gospel. That's it. Because church, if the gospel is true, it is sufficient. It, it is enough to overcome the lies of false doctrine. Because unlike the, the empty gospel being raised up and, and kind of modeled by the Judaizers, the, the gospel that Paul's raising up, he doesn't have to come looking the coolest or talking the best or being the most impressive because he knows that his gospel is true. Church, our gospel is true. And so he doesn't get into like a Facebook debate about why they're wrong on their theology he doesn't go to some obscure website and find this article that passively, aggressively gets his point across. He doesn't even call them out by name. He just points us back to Christ. And church, I could sit up here all day and read you list after list of false teachers and false doctrines, but tomorrow there would be a thousand new ones. And church, more importantly, just knowing who's wrong doesn't give us sound teaching. The truth does. Jesus doesn't say, know who's wrong and that will set you free. No, he says the truth will set you free. That's why Paul says that it's no trouble to write the same things again. And that's why it's safe for them. And that's what we need to do as well. And that's why every week we come up and we preach the same old gospel because it's sufficient. Church, what we need most is not 10 ways to be a better parent or eight ways to exile in our workplace better. What we need is the gospel. We need to be reminded daily that we are hopelessly dead in our sin alone and we deserve nothing but judgment and wrath. But God sent Christ to take our place and receive that which we deserved so that by faith in him, his 
righteousness might be placed on us. Not Jesus plus Jesus, period. And what a grace that is. You can rest, church. In this gospel, we must proclaim to ourselves and to others daily through our words and our actions so that we too can be marked by sound teaching and not led away by false gospels. Because you realize that the the world is trying to disciple you, right? We use the word disciple a lot in the church, but I think we start to, to forget that discipleship is happening just one way or the other. Every show you watch, every billboard you see, everything around you is is seeking to tear your eyes away from Christ and fix you on false gospels that cannot save you. This is why every Christian must be marked by sound teaching. Church, do not be led astray. Fight back against that tide. And the way that we fight back is through this. It's through your time in the word. It's through hearing the word preached and exalted. It's through prayer. It's through Sunday school. Commit to these things, church. Because we will never stumble into holiness. We must fight for it. And the first step, the first front of that fight is to know the truth in sound teaching. And when we know that truth, it begins to mold our hearts and to reshape us. And that's going to lead us to our second point for this morning. And that Christians are marked by biblical fruit. Verses 3 to 8. Christians are marked by biblical fruit. You see, when, when, we, when we have sound teaching, we are impacted by the true and biblical Jesus. And when that impact happens, we cannot remain the same. Remember, we said that the false gospel of the Judaizers was empty and it had no power. But if we believe the words of Scripture, this gospel has power. God will tell us himself in Isaiah that my word does not return void or empty. But it achieves its purpose. And its purpose is to make you more like Christ. Something we'll come back to at the end. And this false gospel that we see is something that, again, in Galatians 5 we're warned about. When Paul's dealing with the same issue, he says to them, look or behold, right? This this word is a kind of a purpose to get your attention. So listen to me in Galatians 5. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, if you accept the false gospel of the Judaizers... Christ will be of no advantage to you. So church, either Christ is everything or he's nothing. That's what Paul says. Because let's be honest about what this false gospel is. It's an attempt to tie good fruit to a dead tree. That's why he feels authorized to use such strong language and to call them as evil as they are because what they're doing is they're lying and they're putting a weight on the Philippians' backs that they could never bear. What happens when you add a lot of a weight to a dead tree? It snaps. 
And no matter how much good or beautiful or, 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 or desirable fruit you tie to a dead tree, what's the result? The tree's still dead. And what happens to the fruit? It rots and it decays. And it's worse off than before. But church, God has not left us here. I mean, do you see the good news of the gospel? That's what verse 3 is, is Paul coming in and reminding them of the hope of the gospel when he says, for we, or, or, or but we, there's a distinction between the, the dead tree and, and the fake fruit that the world produces and the kind that's being produced in the life of a Christian. A collision between Jesus and our lives always leads to change. And so the question that we must ask ourselves and examine ourselves with is what fruit are you producing? Are you, are you trying to produce a fruit where you trust in your works or your rituals or your traditions? Or are you with Paul here when he says, but we worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh? He's saying that all of these things that I used to think were important or mattered, what people thought about me, who I was, what I did, how good I, wanted, how good I was at it, it's all worthless. Church, this is Paul's testimony. He, he's taking them back and he's saying, look at my identity outside of Christ. And I want you to, to, and I want us to take a moment here to see this testimony, because it, it kind of sounds like Paul's gassing himself up a little bit, right? He says, "Look, if you guys want to talk about who's who can earn their way to heaven, one of my favorite statements he makes is, "I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews," right? Like, like this is essentially him saying, "I'm so American, I bleed, I bleed red, white, and blue," right? I did everything right. But when we come to verse 6, we see the truth of his statement. Because do you see what he's doing in verse 6 when he says, as to zeal a persecutor of the church? He's saying all these things that I did that made me look better than everyone else, they were good fruit on a dead tree. You want to know who I really was at my core? I was an evil man who hated God and hated his people and I thought it was good. So it doesn't matter what I tied to that tree. I was dead in my sin. This is his argument against the false teaching of the Judaizers. Of this Jesus plus. Because when it's Jesus plus, it doesn't matter what the fruit is. Because we're still dead at the core. And that's what makes verse 7 all the more glorious. Whatever gain I had, I count as a loss for the sake of Christ. And it's what Jesus is saying in the parable of Matthew 13 when he says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Church, when we look upon the true Jesus, when we behold the true Christ, the Christ we've been looking at in John chapter 1 the last few weeks, we see that everything we used to pride ourselves in, place our hope in, our trust in, it's garbage in comparison. Christ is a treasure. It, it, it is the treasure worth giving up everything for. 
And when we are confronted by this Christ, what we see is all that good fruit that we used to surround ourselves with. It's nothing more than filthy rags. In different translations here, we'll, we'll, instead of saying rubbish, it'll say maybe, maybe dung or animal waste. And the point being that these things that Paul used to pride himself in, find his identity in, are about as low as they can get in his mind. He forsook all that he used to value for something of superior worth. And it kind of feels really foreign to us at times, right? And because it, it is, church. We see pastors today uh, who, who maybe are friends with celebrities or, or maybe we see our friends who claim to be Christians who kind of have it all, right? But church, the gospel is Jesus is everything or he's worthless. There is no in-between. And the truth is that everything in this world is nothing more than a cheap substitute for the well of life. You know, if I, if I had my phone and, and, I, and it was pitch black in here and I turned on the flashlight, it would be pretty bright. But if we took it outside on a sunny day, what would happen? We would be confronted by something far superior, right? This is Paul's testimony. He said, I used to think that these little lights that, that kind of strung me along were the brightest thing around until he literally was confronted with a superior brightness, with something of a far superior value. And then he looked back at his life and he saw this is worthless because I can have this. This is why he hates those who distort the gospel because he knows that they're stealing the superior value that he got to see. Church, this is why we should feel righteous anger when the gospel is abandoned or distorted and why we must fight back with the true gospel. There's an old hymn, and I didn't ask Joe to sing it because it has an, a weird name, but it's, Hast thou heard him, seen him, known him? And I want you to hear what it says. What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. Tis the look that melted Peter. Tis the face that Stephen saw. Tis the heart that wept with Mary can alone from idols draw. Church, do you see? This is the gospel that we're talking about today. And if you're somebody who wants a lot of application in a sermon, here you are. Behold Christ. With all that you are, behold Christ. Give up these worthless idols and see something of superior worth. That's the message of Philippians. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. They lose their seeming value and their worth because we have finally seen that of superior worth. The uncreated creator of John 1 who is God himself. 
Church, it is by this Christ and this Christ alone that we are made new. Where we are freed from the tyranny of trying to fool God and fool ourselves by tying good works to a dead tree because we have been made alive. Not by our works or by our family or by anything else, but by faith in Christ alone. That's going to be our third point for this morning. Christians are marked by faith in Christ alone. Verses 9 to 11. Christians are marked by faith in Christ alone. So in stark contrast to the false and empty gospel we looked at at the beginning of this passage, Paul says that our faith has to be entirely and completely rooted in Christ alone. Let's look again at verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, Okay, so remember when we looked at his, his testimony just a few moments ago, he talked about uh, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, but does that give me a real righteousness? No, it's fake. But, back in verse 9, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that depends on our tradition, our ritual, our passion, our obedience? No. It depends on Him alone. And if you're here this morning and, and you haven't placed your faith in Christ alone, this probably sounds pretty bleak for you. I mean, what hope is there? Now, I was speaking with a woman just a few weeks ago who claimed she was an agnostic, and I asked her about faith, and she, and she said, well, I have faith in myself. And I, I didn't know what to say to her, so the only thing I, I could get out is I asked her, but isn't that exhausting? And I, her, her response was, well, well I, I just do what I have to do. And I, and I just, but how can you bear to carry that weight alone? Church, you and I and everyone on this earth, we're not designed to carry that weight. We will break underneath of it. And that's the point. Because enter Jesus, who lived a life of perfect and sinless obedience to God and has the righteousness of God himself. And as verse 9 tells us, this righteousness, it comes from outside of us, the righteousness from God. And there's nothing that we can do to earn it or deserve it, but it is a free gift received by grace through faith in Christ alone. And I want you to hear the intimacy of this. It's not some like righteousness that's just handed away that maybe like God had an extra set in the closet or, or like a stuffed animal that he just kind of gives out. But what is it? It's the righteousness of Christ. We are united to him. We who are once God's enemies by faith can be reconciled can become his children. You want to know why Paul talks about joy so much while sitting in prison? He's seen something of superior worth. 
And unlike the Judaizers who are content to tie good fruit to a dead tree, this righteousness cleanses us so that we might finally produce real fruit. And because I can't get through a sermon without a Pilgrim's Progress reference, we're going to take a moment and we're going to look at book two. In book two, Christiana, the main character, is being shown around one of the king's palaces by a man named the Interpreter. So here's what it says. But the interpreter said to Christiana, look again. She therefore looked again and said, here's nothing but an ugly spider who hangs by her hands upon the wall. Then, said the interpreter, is there but one spider in all this room? Then water began to stand in Christina's eyes, for she was a woman of quick apprehension. And she said, yes, Lord, there is more than one spider. Yes, and a spider whose venom is far more destructive than that which is in her. The interpreter presently looked upon her and said, you have said the truth. Then said the interpreter, the spider takes hold with her hands as you see and is in the king's palace. And this is recorded to show you that however full of the venom of sin you may be, you may, you may by the hand of faith lay hold of and dwell in the best room that belongs in the king's house above. Church, you and I were once dead trees filled with nothing but the venom of sin. And yet, through faith alone, you and I can take hold of all the promises of God. That's what Paul means in 2 Corinthians when he says, but all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Not by anything we can offer, but by the finished work of Christ and letting him remake us and being identified with him. So if you feel the sting of being filled by the venom of sin, if you are burdened by the decay of tying good works to a dying and dead tree, if you feel the distaste of of trusting in Christ but, but remaining tied to these toxic sources, take heart. Because just like Mary chose the better portion by simply sitting at Christ's feet, you and I too can come to Christ weary and heavy laden and he will give us rest. He can and will give you the life that we've been searching for in lesser things. So church, let's go deeper into the gospel. Whatever step that means for you today, take it. Because I promise you, whatever the world has lied to you and gotten you to fix your eyes on this morning, it's not worth it. Because it is a lie. Now I'm reminded of Hosea and Jeremiah. And you know what God says in Jeremiah? He says the people...
that we could ever place our trust in will do that for us. But Christ has. So let us trust in him because he is worth it. Let's pray. Lord, I, I, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the life change that can come through it, that, that you don't abandon us in, in our struggle, in our strife, in our, in our hopelessness, in, in, in our sin. And so, Lord, I ask you, don't let us be comfortable where we are. Lord, we repent of our sloth, of our comfort in sin. Help us pursue you with all we have. I pray that you would break our blindness, that we might see sin's deformity, that we might abhor it, that we might be terrified of it. Help us be aware and watchful for false teaching in our life and those around us. Lord, stir our hearts to pursue true fruit and not to tie good fruit to a dead tree. Constantly remind us, place before our eyes the completed work of Christ on the cross. And remind us that we, all we need to bring is faith alone, to sit at your feet and to choose the better portion. we thank you and we praise you that we can be identified with you and that we might attain resurrection in this life and the next. Father, we pray all these things in the name of this Jesus, the high and lifted uncreated one who created all things and who suffered all things that we might live. In his name we pray.